0: The volatility continues, it's not going away. We see one day the market's up a percent and a half, the next day it's down a percent. Markets have been all over the place. We've seen financial markets pop off of those lows that were put in a couple weeks ago and have marched upward. We've seen the meme stocks run, crypto run. But again, it's hard to get a lot of clarity on where we're going forward. And that's what we're talking about today, looking at the charts, getting a technical look at the markets, and trying to make sense of all of it. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Gaines. To get some clarity, let's bring on Jim Welsh. We talk to him often, macro strategist and portfolio manager at Smart Portfolios out of San Diego, and of course, his website, as always, macrotides.com. Jim, always great to have you on the GAINS podcast.
4: Always uh, fun to join you, Andy.
0: So uh, a lot of activity as of late. We uh, have uh, seen markets, uh, financial markets come off those lows. They put in... Um, at the uh, beginning of the month, end of February, beginning of the month. We've seen a lot of volatility. Uh, What's your read uh, on stocks right now, Jim?
4: Well, uh, A, the market uh, has become modestly overbought, as one might expect, after the move up we've seen over the last three weeks. Uh, I think the move up has been funneled in part by short covering, uh, because sentiment was deeply negative uh, prior to the low. And that means people take out, you know, establish short positions and so forth. And as they do that uh, and the market goes against them, they're forced to buy to cover those uh, short positions. So that definitely contributed to part of the rally. In addition, the option expiration that occurred on March 18th also contributed, to Andy, because. You know, prior to the expiration, the market had sold off. So those who were short calls, um, as the market then subsequently rebounded and the S and P got above forty three hundred, forty three fifty, and so forth, calls that were out of the money and virtually worthless, all of a sudden are worth more and more Which then also forces the dealer community to cover positions in order to, you know, eliminate the the upside risk that they were exposed to, and then of course hopes that uh, Russia will turn out okay, and to me the oddest one Andy is the faith that the Federal Reserve will be able to engineer uh, a soft landing over the next. 12 months and we can talk about that in more detail if you would like but yeah i mean in,
0: in fact just picking up on what how you started the conversation you talked about short covering and um now and and, and then you referred to that uh was that the triple witching day on yeah. friday that's what you're referring to and i at some point i want yeah. you to actually explain <clears throat> why triple witching days are significant and uh you just mentioned uh also there are hopes of peace between Russia and Ukraine of uh, uh, you know or a, a dial back at the very least um and this is in the backdrop that you talked about the fed the dow theory which we talk about often on the Gates podcast is negative right now uh my gut is the uh i kind of have this feeling that uh it's this this peace news may be sell the news uh scenario so i just wanted to kind of yeah you know, hit on a couple of things here. Let's start with, do you think that this uh, Russia, Ukraine, and a little bit of uh, cooling off here, driving this, and I think once things get resolved, there may be a bit of a sell the news uh, scenario. So let's just start with yeah. Russia, Ukraine, and we can hit on some of these other things as well.
4: Yeah, again, obviously, uh, people believe that if uh, the war stops in Ukraine, that will bring down oil prices, which it, um, I think would very likely... Uh, do that at least modestly the problem I have Andy is that okay if the shooting stops and that will be a very good thing at the same time there's damage that has been done to various markets and I'm thinking of grains and foods and the food supply uh, and the cost of fertilizer and some of these problems predate the Russian invasion So all the Russian invasion did is boost fertilizer prices that much more. They were already up over 100%. And what that means for a lot of farmers around the world, they can't afford to pay uh, that much for fertilizer. So they wind up planting less, which then means the crops that are going to come to fruition six to nine months from now are going to be of a smaller harvest. And there's a number of other examples I can give. Well, and they're not
0: they're not even I mean, there's not there's probably not a ton of planning going on in war torn Ukraine as well, which is a major producer of grain.
4: Yes. Yes. And so the point I would make is that, hey, on the one hand, it's a great relief to see uh, the violence stop the damage is going to persist far longer because they aren't going to be able to do the planting that they need to do in the next few months, certainly at the levels that have been done in prior years. So food prices are going to continue to ramp up. Uh, The sanctions against Russia are not going to be uh, removed anytime soon. So there's longer-term ramifications uh, that are going to remain in place even if they come down to some kind of a resolution to stop Uh, the actual uh, fighting.
0: Well, and I, I think an important point to make here is as horrible as this Russia invasion on Ukraine has been, on citizens of Ukraine, I mean, there's bloodshed, I mean, horrible things that we're seeing on television, a lot of the issues for the economy, and you even mentioned that with the fertilizer, even fuel, oil, and so forth, were already in place And then we've seen peaks, you know, put on by the, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there all along was, under the surface, issues already. The Dow theory, as I mentioned, is negative. There's been, we've mismanaged our energy, in my opinion, and others. There's not going to be any kind of quick solution to uh, the global energy issues. So there's really, and the Fed still... I mean, we've, we've been printing money for years and years and years here for the last couple of years. The Fed's going to get a handle on that. And I think that was the other thing that you had said earlier that, uh, and I agree with you 100%, how they think that the Fed is going to be able to orchestrate some kind of soft landing when we still have all these other things going on in the background uh, is, is a head-scratcher for me.
4: Yeah, as I, uh, I'm writing the April Macrotides tides. Uh, Andy, and if I went back to 1948 to look at all the tightening cycles, and there have been 14 tightening cycles uh, since 1948, and the Fed has engineered a soft landing three times. So that means 22 percent of the time the Fed uh, has been successful of tightening policy and uh, avoiding a recession. It also means 78 percent of the time there was a recession following a tightening cycle. And the three uh, windows or the three examples that Chair Powell cited a couple of weeks ago, 1965, 84, 94, I look at the uh, levels of GDP, the inflation rate back then, the unemployment rate, and, this, and the you know comparing them to the the challenge that we face today um, is significantly worse, if you will, today uh, than any of those other uh, instances. So. Uh, Not only has the batting average been really pretty low, I mean, you know, I jokingly make a comment that if, uh, you know, uh, your home team had a winning percentage of 22 percent, no one would be bragging about how common their wins are. And that's what Powell said. It's, you know, it's common for us to achieve a soft landing. Well, I don't think 22 percent of the time is common. Um, And the unique challenges of this situation, um, I think, is just going to make that Uh, just a a lot more difficult because of the volatility coming from so many different sectors, not just here in the U.S., but obviously globally.
0: I can't speak for uh, 1965, but 1984 and 1994, I've lived through both of them, uh, it, it feels a lot different then and what was going on Uh, in the economy, in the world, and everything compared to now. Is that fair to say, uh, without a doubt?
4: Well, what I go through is in 1982, the U.S. economy experienced the worst, deepest recession since the Great uh, Depression. So it was a very deep recession, GDP growth uh, contracted by 1.8%. Uh, So the rebound and the reason that happened is the Federal Reserve had pushed the Fed funds rate up to 20 percent. Mortgage rates were extreme, you know, like double digits, 12 to 14 percent. And so you had a lot of pent up demand. So once the Fed did lower interest rates, it unleashed that pent up demand. So the economy grew very strongly in 1983. And in 1984, I believe the growth rate was like 7.2 percent. So my point in the unemployment rate was 7.3. Well, it's 3.8 now. So the labor market had a lot of slack back then, which made it possible for wage growth to kind of be pretty modest as opposed to what we're seeing over the last 12 months. And the wage, uh, the labor market is extraordinarily tight. So to me, again, as I went into the detail of those three uh, examples that Powell cited, um, man, this is far more challenging than any of those three Instances. So, it, but again, the willingness of investors to believe that, okay, we can hit, uh, we can do a soft landing. Uh, this morning, another Fed governor was on CNBC. Oh, yeah, I'm confident we can do it. Well, no one's going to say if you're on the Federal Reserve Board, gee, I really don't know if we can pull this off. You know, it's a real long shot. Right. In gonna fact, if people
0: that. are going to hurt really bad when we make uh, further missteps, because if you go from our track record as of late, it's not too good. No, they're not yeah. going to say that. I'm joking. but uh, no, of course,
4: no, but, I, you know, again, last year they stuck with the inflation is going to be transitory for about six months from like June until almost December when it was obvious that all the things that were making inflation uh, so bad were not improving and And so the willingness of people to just want to believe whatever the Fed tells them to me is kind of remarkable, as you noted, given some of the track record that they've they have uh you know in their history so but that's where we're at mentally and the, the one thing i I draw a comparison uh Andy is back in two thousand and eighteen uh the market sold off twenty percent into late december twenty eighteen and then Powell indicated that they were. You know, not raise rates in 2019, and then in January, they began to ex- expand their balance sheet again. So my point is that here we are, uh, you know, where we're exact opposite. You know, it'd be, this rally would make sense if the Fed had just said, we're cutting, we're slashing interest rates, and we're going to start a QE program. Instead, they're doing just the opposite, and they're going to be doing it uh, in the face of a slowing economy. And this is the one point I would make that I think is important. Uh, you know, I hear equity vac- investors say, well, the market's already discounted, the seven or eight rate increases. And, uh, you know, look at the two-year Treasury yield. You know, it already reflects all those increases. That all is true. What the market, I don't think, can fully appreciate is there's a difference between the two-year jumping to 2.2 percent and the impact on the economy. And we're going to see uh, hu- uh, housing slow materially. We're not going to see auto sales pick up because the computer chip problem is still with us. Um, I, in fact, it just to gonna... put it in
0: perspective, I read today, you know, the the EV Hummer, super popular. If you're getting an order now, you can't, you're not even going to take delivery of that vehicle until 2024 citing the same things you just mentioned there. So we're yeah, seeing it across yeah. the board uh, yeah. in chips, go ahead, and housing.
4: And, and so, uh, you know, I've noted in, in, in the last six months, you know, that the consumers uh, are sitting on a fair amount of savings. Um, and that is acting as a cushion to the, this initial wave of inflation over the last 12 months. Plus the desire just to get out and, you know, kind of return to some sense of normalcy, As far as getting on a plane, going somewhere, going out to dinner, catching a movie, Um, people have been willing to pay extra. You know, prices are up, but they're willing to pay it, A, because they got the money, uh, and B, they just want that semblance of normalcy to be a bigger part of their life. I think one of the key things that's likely to happen in the next three to six months, Andy, is because prices are continuing to push higher, we're going to get slowly but surely – more and more consumers starting to back away. We're already seeing it in the bottom 10 to 20% of wage earners. The increase in energy prices is hitting them really pretty hard, obviously depending on the occupation, maybe severely. Um, but I think over the next six months, slowly but surely, as consumers you know, work off some of their additional savings that they have uh, from all the government stimulus money that was distributed last year, Uh, Slowly but surely, I think consumers are going to start to balk at higher prices. And I think this is going to be a real test for the stock market. It may be three months. It may be six months. But at some point in time, if that starts to develop, it means that profit margins are going to come under more pressure because the demand has been so strong. Companies have been able to raise prices. I think that pricing power is going to gradually erode uh, for the balance of this year. And that is going to have an impact on profit margins. It's going to take a while to develop. But I think once it becomes obvious that consumers are, in fact, starting to balk, that's another hurdle, I think, for the equity market.
0: Hey, real quick, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. And as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We drop gains episodes on Wednesday and Friday mornings, Wednesday and Friday mornings. There was a a slight change in our uh, our schedule and now you can uh, get that fresh gains episode Wednesday and Friday mornings. Okay, we're going to be right back with Jim Welsh uh, talking markets. We'll uh, take a look at uh, some key levels we're watching and all that when we get right back from the break.
1: If you enjoy learning about communities culture, and history, then Shades of the City podcast is for you. We will bring you stories like the legacy of Johnson Publishing Company, most notably known for Jet and Ebony magazines. Basically what the world said African-American people could not do, these magazines proved otherwise. Subscribe now to Shades of the City on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Call from mom. Answer it
3: Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
0: Back with Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at Smart Portfolios in San Diego. His website, macrotides.com. And then, uh, hey, Jim, real quick for your plugs, go ahead and get them in here. Uh, you always uh, have uh, some plugs and some yeah. special things for the Gaines listener.
4: Yeah, I'd be happy to send uh, this past uh, yesterday's uh, Mac uh, weekly technical review, uh, which I discussed some of the things uh, that you and I have just covered in more detail, plus uh, a real technical viewpoint on not only the S&P 500, gold, the dollar, Silver, gold stocks, and of course treasury bonds. So it really covers all the markets, and I think uh, uh, your listeners will appreciate that. And and so speak- all they have to do is send it, uh, an email. Pardon me, Jim Welsh Macro, W E L S H at macro at gmail dot com.
0: And speaking <laughs> of technical levels that we're watching, and gains listeners should probably grab a grab a piece of paper here and a pen. What levels are you looking at here, Jim? as significant areas of, of, of both uh, resistance and strength for the market?
4: Okay. First, let me preface, uh, Andy, the detail because I think this is important. Um, again, my take was coming into this year that we would see a 10 to 15% correction in the first quarter, which obviously unfolded. Now the question mark is, is that correction comp- over? I mean, have we in fact made a bottom And we're on our way to new all-time highs, because that was my view. We'd have this correction, and then the S&P would rally uh, above 5,000. And at this point in time, from my perspective, the jury is still out whether or not the correction is done. Um, So potentially, in technical terms, uh, the initial decline that we saw that bottomed in February and March would be wave A, and that this rebound is a wave B. And typically, a B wave would be three legs: an up phase, a down phase, and an up phase. And if you look at a chart of the S and P, uh, Andy, you can kind of see pretty clearly that so far all we have is three waves in the rally from 4115, and we're nearing the end of what would be this third part of that rally. Um, if the Correction is completely over. We'll see a pullback in the S&P towards 4,400, and then another rally that will take the S&P up probably above 4,700, maybe even 4,750, and that will complete five up. And that then would be, in my opinion, a confirmation that the bottom is actually in. Now, irony is that if you get that fifth leg up on this rally, you'll then get a wave two pullback that could retrace 38 to 61% of the move up. So there'll be a decent-sized pullback that'll probably bring the S&P down to 4,400 to 4,500-ish, give or take. Um, The alternative is that wave A bottomed at 4,115. This is a big three-wave rally for a B wave, and we're going to see another decline that not only tests 4,115 but actually takes it out and i'm um, in that camp by the way i'm in that camp and and that's i'm leaning that way too because fundamentally as i noted earlier in 2018 the fed eased policy and the market rallied like crazy in 2020 the fed eased policy plus we had an enormous amount of fiscal stimulus now we have just the opposite we have the fed not only going to be raising rates they're also going to start to trim their balance sheet and if you look at a chart of the fed's balance sheet in 2018 While they were also raising rates, the S&P went into a trading range for most of that year and then wound up dropping 20%. So to me, these are the headwinds that support the idea that, okay, this rally will probably be done in the next week or two, and then I think the door could be open for a decline that goes back down to 41.15. So right now it really comes down to whether or not, We get this dip to 4400 or so, 4450, and then a rally back up above whatever high is struck here in the next few days uh, for a complete wave five from the 4115. So to me, this is probably a good place to take uh, to lighten some exposure because if we get the wave five, we're going to get a pullback below where we currently are priced, and if uh, we this is a B wave. The C-wave down is going to drop the S&P down below 41.15, or at least test that level. So taking some money off the table at this point in time, Andy, I think makes some sense within that framework.
0: Going back to the Russia-Ukraine thing, you know, it seems like, especially this week, cooler heads are going to prevail here a bit. There may be a bit of a de-escalation there. How does this all play into the overall markets at this point?
4: Well, it's a factor, in my own opinion. It's an emotional short term factor, whereas the course that the Federal Reserve is is on is a a much important factor uh, going out the next six to 12 months. You know, a lot of talk today about the yield curve inverting. Uh, Historically, the lead time once the two year uh, goes above the 10 year is 19 months. So we're talking a super long lead time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just
0: want to throw that in there. I did not realize that's. So when that occurs, you don't even see the, the result of that playoff for almost short of two years or a yeah. year and a half.
4: Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, obviously there's variability. It could be 14 months in one cycle and 23 months in another cycle, but the average was 19 going back to the 1950s. So it's a reliable indicator. It's just like way out in the future. I prefer looking at the leading economic indicators, the LEI, which is a composite of 10 different economic statistics. Historically, the lead time on that is 10 months. And that hasn't turned down yet, Andy. So personally, I'm leaning more uh, on that, A, because of the timeliness, but also because it gets away from some of the machinations that I think are taking place in the treasury market with everything that's going on. So, um, again, I'm not in the recession camp for 2022. I think any risk of a recession is sometime probably in the second half of 2023. And so to me, it's almost out of mind, you know, at this stage. Oh, of the yeah. Day. I
0: mean, that's just so far in advance. And um, well, how do you, what's your read on the Dow theory going bearish right now? I, does that mean anything for you?
4: Uh, it, it is a, um, it's well. It's a broader uh, approach where you need the down the transports to make new highs or make new lows, and so there's a lot of wiggle room in the middle. And um, I have an indicator called the major trend indicator, going back to 1928, does a pretty decent job of identifying bull phases, bear phases. And last Thursday, it generated a bear market rally. Uh, signal so it signaled that okay we got into a bear market uh, during that decline, and now it's given a a bear market rally signal, and you know so that for but still a rally but still
0: upside. a rally in the bear market
4: right right okay and in order to if you will confirm a new bull market that has to continue to rise over the next few weeks and reach a certain threshold, and, and it very well may do that. So I'm open minded to the idea. Hey, the bottom is in. But I think that five-wave-up pattern is really important to kind of confirm it. Um, and it it isn't there yet. And once it is there, we should have a decent-sized pullback of uh, two to 300 or so S&P points for wave two before the real fireworks to the upside would happen. So, uh, again, I just think we're at a spot trade location-wise, if you will. We're buying here, I think, is just um, – I don't think it's wise. Uh, we've seen a real pickup in speculation in terms of the meme stocks with GameStock, AMC, uh, even the move up in Tesla. So the option, call option traders, which went nuts last year in February and June, are back in force. And what they do is buy call options that are way out of the money. Uh, now the dealer community has to sell those options, so they're effectively then short Tesla or whatever the stock those options are on. And that's what happened with the uh, triple witching, is that as stocks and indices started to move toward and above important uh, strike prices, the dealer communities effectively short those stocks, and they were forced to then cover. And we're seeing that kind of action play out, I think, in the last three four days as well, Andy. So that normally is a sign of speculation. So, uh, again, a lot of people, to me, it just seems like the fear of missing out has come in back and forth. Uh, and people are oblivious to whatever happens in Ukraine, oblivious to, okay, maybe the yield curve inverts, maybe it doesn't. More importantly, the Fed is going to be hiking rates, shrinking its balance sheet, as we get evidence that the economy is, in fact, slowing. And at some point in time, whether it's this upcoming quarterly uh, you know, calls by companies, uh, I think they're going to be important. Do they start talking about, gee, we're going to lower uh, our guidance uh, for the balance of the year because our, you know, our costs are going up and uh, rates are going up and we think the economy is going to slow. You know, so these are all the things that I think have the potential of creating uh, the reason for the market to have another leg uh, down uh, and potentially get all the way back down to 41.15. But right here, right now, Andy, I can't in good faith say, gee, I think this is a good time to buy really anything because the downside risk here is, uh, you know, five, six hundred points potentially on the S&P. And in the very short term, there may be about 100 points left on the upside until we know based on the pattern uh, and so forth. But the signs of speculation, you know, again, suggest we're nearing some kind of a short term high. And then we'll just see what kind of a pullback. If the S&P drops much below forty four hundred forty three fifty to me that will immediately kind of say no we're not going to get that fifth wave we're going down for a retest there's just no way of knowing right here right now
0: it's interesting those meme stocks did have that pop off the bottom have now stalled out in the last session or two another one that uh we've see it is growth crypto crypto on the koi side mm-hmm. uh, underneath the surface is uh had a nice little run, you know, over the last couple of weeks. So is there any chance that we go, the S&P just uh, goes straight up and then retest those, uh, you know, what is that, 48, 48? Oh, the, the
4: high? Yeah, it's the, the high. 48.18. Anything is possible. When you get into kind of a speculative mode, which is to me where the market has gotten, given what we're seeing with the meme stocks, um, the option traders and what's happening there, um, and just the mentality, yeah, you can just keep going. I mean, this morning, you know, the area around 4,600 was, in my opinion, somewhat significant resistance because there were a couple highs during the month of February, just under 4,600. Well, we gapped over it this morning, and now there's a gap uh, below the market on the S&P um, at about uh, yesterday's high, which was 4,576. So, um you know, I I think that gap is going to get filled, Andy. And, and again, the main thing I would point out, for me that is the most important, is monetary policy is going in the opposite direction than it was in December of 2018 and March of 2020. And I just think there's a lot of novice investors out there that are clueless.
0: Those novice investors that you speak of that are clueless, you know, for years now, and, and I've talked about this several times over the last, month where if you haven't been in this for a while, this game, you know, the last couple of years, hey, buy the dip. And every time you buy the dip, that stock comes back and even gains yeah. more. I mean, uh, these investors see, hey, you have a pullback, it's an opportunity, pull back, you buy the dip. But you yeah. and I both know that when things <laughs> Some... start sliding, you will get crushed if well, you buy and... the dip and it falls, and you buy the dip and it keeps falling. Going. And and we've been there. And And you
4: run out of money if you're playing with options. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And you can run out of money fast. Yeah. Now, the one thing I'd like to note is that as the market was declining during February, you know, as you know, we talk, it it had a low, the S&P had a low of 42.23 on January 24th. I expected a bounce. And then I said the S&P was likely to drop below 42.23 and what i told my subscribers was that hey if it gets below 4175 do a little buying a little buying under 4150 and do a little bit more under 4125 and as good fortune would have it the s&p uh, gapped down on uh, february 24th and traded under 4120 so uh, anyone who you know my subscribers basically were given a gift in the sense that the market gapped down triggering if you will all three of those incremental buying levels, uh, on the opening of, of the, uh, 24th of February. So uh, sometimes it doesn't hurt to be a little lucky too. Um, Oh my
0: but, gosh. I think luck <laughs> doesn't <laughs> hurt to be lucky at, <laughs> a lot hey, of times.
4: Yeah. You know, we wish our sports teams could be a yeah, little no more kidding, lucky right? than they usually are, you know? So, um, no, I, I, again, I think that, um, there's a little too much enthusiasm right here. Short term, Yes, we can follow through, but I, I again, I think the market is going to have to contend with the, you know, the other shoe, meaning, and, and I'm glad we were talk about this. Okay, when Powell gave his presentation to the National Association of Business Economics a week or so ago, uh, you know, he acknowledged that the Fed doesn't have any control over some of the problems, you know, things like computer chips, labor market, you know, they, they can't address some of the dynamics that have been and will continue to put upward pressure on inflation. But the one thing we can do, he said, is to uh, reduce demand. Now, that's a very significant statement that I think a lot of people have just ignored. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to get the soft landing. Nothing else matters. But the way they're going to achieve that soft landing is by raising rates and tightening policy enough to reduce demand. And that means uh, you know, again, a slowdown in the economy, an intentional slowdown uh, at the best of the, the Fed and monetary policy. And I think that's when those headlines start to show just how much things are slowing, that is likely to be a hurdle because inflation is so high, Andy, you can't say, oh, okay, uh, the economy's slowing, the Fed's going to stop raising rates. Unfortunately, we're not there. Now if the Fed, and as you know, back in January, I was talking about the Fed front-loading the rate increases. You know, they should raise rates in March, May, and June. Now, back then, we were talking 25 basis point increases because, you know, that was like somewhat uh, ahead of the curve. Uh, Because coming in this year, most people were talking three increases. And I'm like, hey, I think it's going to happen March, May, and June. So they may be more aggressive in one of those meetings or two, actually increase it by 50 basis points. But, again, unless they get real evidence that the economy is slowing so much as to raise some real concerns about a recession, I don't think we're going to get the relief on the inflation side that I thought was likely to happen in the second quarter. It's not going to happen as much because gas prices have, you know, obviously gone up even more. Uh, The food prices are going to continue to creep higher. So the headline number for the CPI when it comes out, I think, on April 12th for March It's going to be north of 8%, you know, and there will be some relief uh, in the second quarter because the year-over-year calculations, you know, we take off what happened in May of 2021, June of 2021, and there were some big numbers back then. So there will be some relief. It's just not going to be enough to, I think, get the Fed to think, oh, okay, we don't have to do any more, you know. um, So, again, when Powell said, yeah. What we do need to do is reduce demand. So that means for a while they're gonna be oblivious or ignore any real slowing in the economy because that happens to be exactly what they're trying right. to accomplish.
0: Yeah. It's um and and, and, and to think that you're gonna have a soft landing by doing that, you wanna soften demand. I mean that that that's a problem and yeah. that's gonna impact earnings and other yeah. things as well. Yeah. And that's yeah. going to impact the market.
4: Yeah. I think, so. I mean, again, that's the risk. So that's why I don't think we can flash an all clear until again, there's five up in the S and P. Uh, then we see a, a pullback and that will be the time I think to add, you know, again, I, I was fortunate that a hey, market gap down on February 24th and triggered all that basically at the low. um, Uh, That ain't going to happen again, I'm sure, for a while, Andy. Um, So, again, this is just not a good time, I think, for anybody to commit money. In fact, I'd be inclined to say if some of the stuff that you've been, you know, holding on to that got pounded really hard as rebounded, you might consider taking some chips off the table just because I think there's another pullback coming, um, even though ultimately I think the S&P is going above 5,000. I think there's a new all-time coming, high coming. It's just like, okay, how do we navigate some of the, the, the squiggles over the next two or three months?
0: What, what vehicles are you using right now to play the market in any way? Are you shorting? Uh, are you, not, are you no, using indexes? Yet. Are you just sitting tight?
4: What's the play? In terms of the S&P, uh, I, I'm flat. I mean, to me, most of the in my opinion, most of the rally is over, uh, and it's too early yet to go short because I want to see some more deterioration on the momentum and so forth uh, in the S&P. You know, a a week or two ago, I recommended um, uh, some EM exposure via South Korea, in Malaysia.
0: For, for our GAINS listeners. Yes. Okay, so when he says EEM exposure, he's talking about the iShares MCI Emerging Market ETF. That's
4: EEM, uh, no, right? You said no, e- let, let me clarify it, uh, Andy. I'm talking about like the umbrella of the emerging markets and specifically with, you know, in terms of getting exposure in emerging markets, specifically then drilling down into South Korea. Okay, That's what vehicles EEM. do
0: you use? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh,
4: EWY. Okay is south korea and malaysia is ewm
0: now are you still also finding eem the broader emerging markets uh, attractive here as well or are you are you only comfortable with the boil down to you yeah. said those E W Y or ewm
4: yeah i'm only comfortable because again if there's going to be another leg down to 4100 or lower uh you know all these sectors are going to get hit The reason I chose the two, uh, South Korea and Malaysia, is they've started to hold up better towards the, especially Malaysia, towards the end of the correction, Malaysia actually was creeping higher. Uh, And uh, South Korea is way oversold in terms of relative performance to the S&P. There's an important support area around 68 or so on EWY, I mean, going back a number of years. So... Um, You know, I'm comfortable like holding that kind of exposure because if we do go down and hit new lows, uh, that stuff I think is very likely to hold up better than the actual emerging market ETF that you were referencing, EEM, uh, in that kind of environment. So until uh, I'm convinced that the bottom is in, and, you know, again, my hesitation is more driven by the fundamental aspects then, uh, you know, the five-wave-up stuff is important for me technically. But, you know, in terms of all the rest of the stuff, the main conviction comes from just looking at the fundamental side of the equation and where monetary policy is going, economy slowing, all that kind of stuff. To me, those pose potentially pretty big hurdles because, again, the Fed's not going to change the direction of monetary policy just because the economy slows. Now, in prior cycles, That was the case. Oh, we got, like, in 2018, economy started to show signs of slowing down. The Fed stopped raising rates and reversed. That's just not going to happen in the next three to six months.
0: Another area of the market uh, that it's kind of been a bit disappointment considering everything that's gone on is gold really has not delivered. Uh, We've talked about gold in the past. Um, Yep. Yep, Why? First of all, why hasn't it delivered? You would think... Conditions like this, anybody who's familiar with you know, the, the, the things that move gold, conditions like this, I think a lot of people would have thought that gold be, would be $2,500 an ounce. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we always talk about GLD as our uh, a vehicle for uh, gold. But What's your thoughts on GLD and yeah. gold?
4: Well, um, I think as long as gold holds above 1880, and in the weekly technical review from yesterday, I said, I think there's a chance that gold is going to drop below 1900. Um, I didn't expect it today. I just said, okay, it's setting up for a drop below 1900. And as long as it holds above 1880, I think gold has a decent shot of making another run at 2070 sometime this year. So I recommended uh, gold uh, a few weeks ago when it traded under 1925. And in anticipation, you know, so basically what I told people, hey, when gold spikes up, you don't want to buy it. Instead, wait for a pullback. Gold spiked up to 2067 and then pulled back to, I think, 1902 initially, then bounced again, and then came down this morning to 1890-something before uh, uh, strengthening again. So I just wanted to buy it on the pullback in anticipation that gold has, the, I think, the chance to go up and make new highs. One different thing here. And to answer your initial point and in question, Andy, is why didn't gold do better? Well, in June of last year, I was looking for the dollar index to make an important trading low just above 89. It did, and I thought it would rally to 99 to 100, and it has. And I think that was a major headwind for gold. Um, it, you know, it just didn't get traction in part because I think people were like, "Oh, the Fed changed policy at some point in time. That's good for the dollar. Maybe not so good again." Also, the theme last year was don't worry about inflation. It's going to be transitory. Why do I need gold if gold if inflation is going to be a passing fancy? You know, I think those are the and then crypto had a great, you know, some great moves last year. So some of the capital that may have historically gone toward gold. I think, you know, there's a ju- younger generation that could care less about gold, but they care a great deal about crypto.
0: Yeah, I agree with you that there. I th- I believe the the silver slash gold trade, some of those folks that are in crypto would have been in that space, say, 20, 25 years ago.
4: Even uh, 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, Andy. even 10
0: years ago. Before crypto, yeah. you know, crypto has been around maybe 10 years or a little longer. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah.
4: Yeah. So I think, you know, again, it holds 1880. I think there's a move up. What I am looking at is uh, treasury bonds because I'm a contrarian. In other words, when everyone's negative or positive, I'm going to lean the, other op- the opposite direction. And that's like short-term. Everyone seems to be pretty optimistic about the market right here. Okay, it's time for a short-term high. On bonds, everyone hates bonds. Um, And I get why. Um, But, uh, you know, treasury yields, I think, are nearing a trading low. Um, So, um, you know, this is kind of like in the vein of a scalp trade, where I think TLT, over the next few months, has the potential to rally to 138, to 140. Uh, Today, it closed just under 131. So we're not talking about a huge move, uh, but it does, you know, yield, uh, I think, two, two and a half percent. So you get a little carrying uh, charge in your favor. But um, I, I just think that things have gotten so overdone in the bond market that we're likely to see Treasury yields come down for a period. And again, if If this is a B wave in the stock market and it's ultimately going back down to retest 41.15, that would be something I think that would be supportive of the Treasury bond market. So, um, you know, that's contrarian play, but I I think it's time to look at buying. Um, As you know, months ago, I thought, okay, it's a great time to short the bonds. And uh, bond yields have obviously risen a lot. What led me to say it's time to short the bonds was, you know, people were really complacent last year about inflation. Oh, it's just going to be transitory. Mm, I don't think so. And now I think it's just time to switch to the other side. It's gotten overdone. I think yields have the potential of coming down. And, um, you know, time will will tell. But that's the one trade that I would say that I'm comfortable with. And then a longer term trade, and you and I have talked about this, is uranium. I think slowly but surely the world is coming around to seeing that there is a place and need for nuclear power, that green energy is just not sufficient and reliable enough to replace fossil fuels uh, completely. We've got this transition that's gonna take a while and if you want the cleanest energy out there, it's nuclear. And, you know, I read an article not too long ago. People, you know, the green mentality has reached, you know, I think absurd levels. So like in Germany, they've reduced their number of nuclear power plants from 17 in 2011 to only three now. And they're still planning on closing those three, which is to me mind boggling. Um, but because they, they got so freaked out about Fukushima. But in the meantime, Andy, they're going to continue to get 27 percent of their energy from coal. Now, what kind of a green idiot could actually think that that's a good plan if you're really trying to cut emissions? Yeah. Well, we've seen some of
0: these policies uh, by uh, cutting energy sources in favor of going to green energy sources that aren't ready yet. Have they've actually been dirtier because they've been. Forced to to burn coal and and dirtier crude oil. Um, that global X uranium ETF that you're speaking to, we've talked about it many times on the Gaines episode. That ticker for the Gaines listener, by the way, is URA Global X Uranium ETF. That's a great point that you've made. Um, on on uranium and energy, and um, this thing's actually hasn't done too bad since we first started mentioning it close to the beginning of the year. So that was a yeah, nice little yeah, trade. It's,
4: it's, it's held up. I mean, I, I believe that it will make a move up towards 31 sometime this year. And um, I like the way it's been trading in the last month or so. Um, for a while there, uh, it w- would react to oil. You know, oh, gee, if oil prices are going up, that's going to imply that people are going to want to move toward nuclear power and uranium. And it would rally. And then over the last week or two, and any time oil was weak, uranium was weak. And yeah, I noticed that,
0: by the way. I, I did notice that. Yeah. And I saw that rally with oil um, yeah. and then and then it now trading kind of lockstep with uh, oil.
4: Yeah. And so today CNBC had a fellow on and I can't remember his name, but he was in the he was the energy secretary under President Obama for, I think, uh, from 2012 or 13. And then he was around for the first year of uh, uh, Trump's. And then I'm sure he got replaced because he wanted, you know, somebody on his team to be that. But he was on CNBC and extolling the virtues of nuclear power and how important it is that we use that as the bridge uh, to get us to where, you know, we want to get to in terms of utilizing green energy sources. But in the meantime, uh, creating energy that is a bridge. And that can supply uh, the cleanest energy going. You know, uh, I read something not long ago where if you, if you compare a solar panel, a panel farm, uh, for it to uh, uh, generate an equivalent amount of energy that a nuclear power plant would, uh, it would take uh, 400 times the land
0: mass. You could say the same thing about wind farms, too. Uh, yes. They're just yes. not. I mean, they take an enormous amount of space. Of space. Yeah. No, yeah.
4: It's, it's fine. They're out in the boonies somewhere, but then they have to have transmission lines to go to bring them to where the energy is truly and needed. And they have
0: to so, be maintained. There's a lot, actually. There's a lot to stuff. them. It's not yeah. just turnkey and that's it. and You forget about it and you have unlimited energy forever.
4: So yeah. I'm just hoping yeah. that with everything that's going on here, Andy, there will be a reassessment. Of nuclear because since Fukushima in 2011, and, and nuclear power has just been in the doghouse, you know. And uh, the technology exists today. I mean, Three Mile Island. That plant was built in 19 started building, I think, in 1966. Does well, yeah, I mean, Three Mile
0: that, Island was like, it was like in the 70s. I mean, first of yeah, all, by the time the,
4: the plant was com- completed. Yeah, yeah no,
0: I mean, when they actually had the Three Mile incident. Yeah. That was, that was seventies, I think, late seventies. If you're, yeah. if you're ever in that area, you can, you can still uh, visit.
4: Yeah. Um, well, I remember, uh, uh, you know, going to the movies in China syndrome and three weeks later, <laughs> three mile Island happened. And it was like, wow, if you wanted a promo for a movie, you couldn't have gotten a well, better one. I think the you point
0: know, is so. the technology, safety technology and everything that goes into producing nuclear power Uh, has changed significantly uh, since then. I think they're uh, more on point with a lot of the even safety concerns now versus even, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, Hey, Jim, as we're uh, wrapping up today's GAINS podcast, your takeaway from our conversation, your thoughts on things going forward.
4: Well, just in summary, you know, the Federal Reserve has basically set a course to uh, diminish demand. That's the one thing variable that they think they have control over, and as they do that, uh, that means higher rates, tighter monetary policy, and slower economic growth. Um, and I think that, to me, is the one message from Powell that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. <laughs> you know, and it's maybe I think the most important part of what he said. There's a lot of things outside our control. We, you know, we hope those things improve. The one thing we can do. Is uh, reduce demand. So that normally is not good for equity investors. And then secondly, the idea of a soft landing in the current environment is just going to be really challenging. Now, the reality though, is we won't know whether the Fed is going to be successful for probably nine to 12 months from now. (laughs) You know, so, you know, it's just like, okay, that's, that's a back burner issue. Um, uh, But I think, as I said, uh, the next few weeks are going to be important from a chart analysis on the S&P, whether or not the bottom is, in fact, in. And so hopefully, you know, we can talk in a few weeks and we'll see what the S&P has done. And then we may have a whole different uh, uh, game plan for, for listeners.
0: All right. Well, hey, uh, great uh, conversation today, Jim. That's Jim Welsh, Macro Strategist and Portfolio Manager, Smart Portfolios out of San Diego, California. As always, the website, MacroTides.com. Give us your final plugs, Jim.
4: (laughs) Jim Welsh, macro at Gmail, and I'll be happy to send you. Uh, this last week's uh, weekly technical review.
0: All right, sounds good. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon.
4: You got it. Thanks, All right. Andy.
0: All right, that wraps up the Gains podcast. As always, hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you, and as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new Gains episode drops. Our Gains episodes now drop on Wednesday. And Friday morning. So uh, be sure to check us out there. And I will see you on Friday morning.
1: A news radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey.
2: T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours